Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. So in this Thrive series, we have been tackling this particular issue. How does someone grow? How does a human life actually change? And really more specifically, why do some people grow and other people do not? Um, I, I, sh I shared this. Um, over the three decades that I've been in Christian leadership, two things have really astonished me, just amazed me regularly. The first thing is how much some people's lives have changed over the years as they've submitted themselves to God. And the second thing that amazes me is how little some people's lives have changed over the years, no matter how long they seem to have been in the church. Both things have amazed me. I have seen, I mean, tons of examples of real growth and life change that have just floored me. I've seen it happen right before my eyes. Um, I've gotten, uh, I've had conversations, gotten phone calls, emails, texts from, uh, from folks around that have been impacted incredibly. The staff uh, members have had those kind of conversations and people share what's happening, what God is doing in their lives and growth and thriving that is taking place just because of the activity of God in their life. And when we read those notes, those texts, those emails, when we have those conversations, it is just incredibly motivating for those of us that, that lead this church. It's just, it tells us that all the effort and energy that's expended in ministry is worth it. It's worth it. So it's just thrilling to watch growth and life change happen. Now it is equally astonishing and be quite a, it can be quite a bummer really to see folks who've been around for a long time and yet for all indications have not really grown very much. They maybe they came in and started out fearful or doubtful or selfish and after a long period of time they are still just as fearful and doubtful and selfish as they were when they first came. So really they haven't grown much or at all. And here's the deal. That's not okay. It's not okay. It's not alright to just exist in the Christian walk. It's important for all of us to know that there is no neutral in the Christian life. You're moving forward or you're moving backwards. So in this series called Thrive, we've been looking at uh, the solution. We've taken note of a large-scale study that was done not too long ago that sheds light on what really contributes to growth and life change inside the individual. There were five things that kept coming up in the stories, the faith stories of those that were really growing in their Christian walk. And the themes of those five things are found throughout the pages of Scripture, from cover to cover. Here they are. We're calling these this five things that God uses to help you thrive, to help us grow. Here they are. First, there's practical teaching. We talked about that in the very first week of the series. That is taking God's Word and applying it to this life like really trying to apply it and live it out. The second thing we talked about last week was providential relationships. Most of us can think of someone that, that God put in our life to help us grow. Maybe you've been placed in someone else's life in order to help them grow. When we lean into those relationships, we both thrive. Three other things are private disciplines, personal ministry, and then pivotal circumstances. So those are the five things that we're going to be talking about and have been already. These are the realities that just keep coming up in the testimonies of those folks who are actually growing in their, in their walk with Jesus. These are the ones that are experiencing success when it comes to seeing positive change occur in their lives. 
bad habits falling by the wayside, maybe well-worn passive destructive behavior that are no longer dictating policy in their lives. These are the folks that give accounts of how God's power is working in them and through them, making them different than they were in the past. These are the folks that would say, thank God, I'm growing. I can see it, I, and people around me can see it in my life. I'm growing. So today we're going to look at the next component of a thriving life, and it is this, private disciplines. Private disciplines. Say that with me. Private disciplines. I want to share what might be the most important lesson when it comes to seeing how private disciplines actually spur us on to spiritual growth. And here it is. Spiritual growth takes place through training, not trying. Spiritual growth takes place through training, not trying. That is to say, there's a basic distinction that's important for us to understand. If we're really going to make progress in this thing that we're calling growing and thriving. The Apostle Paul sheds some light on this when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 25, here's what he says. He says, everyone who, com who competes in the games goes into strict trying. Is that what he says? It's not what he says, is it? Goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. There is an enormous difference between, between training to do something versus just trying to do it. We tend to overestimate what we can accomplish through trying, and we underestimate the changes that can happen through training. All right, show of hands. How many here in this room, right now, right now, just as you are, you could walk outside and not walk, but run an entire marathon today, right now? 26.2 miles, you could do it. Wow, I thought you'd either be in better shape or better liars, I don't know. But. Okay, another question. How many of you could leave here, go outside, and run a marathon right now if you try really, really, really hard? My guess is that eventually, lots of us would be able to run a marathon. Eventually. Um, but if you were going to attempt that, what would you need to do first? You would need to train. You need to train. What does it mean to train? Training, in essence, means this. It's this statement. I arrange my life around those activities that enable me to do what I cannot now do by direct effort or just by trying. I arrange my life around those activities that will enable me to do what I cannot now do by direct effort. As a general rule, in any sphere of life, significant transformation will necessitate training, not just trying. It works. It just does not work overnight. And our culture loves things that work overnight. That's why we fall in love with this notion that we can do anything we want if we try really, really hard. That's nonsense. Maybe nobody else in your life will tell you that. It's nonsense. All right, I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do for years. Years. I am going to play you Amazing Grace on the violin. Sarah is so kind to let me use her violin. This is, this is nice. This must have cost like 50 bucks. She told me this is 
This is uh, her backup violin is 20 grand. Okay, this is the first string one right here, okay? All right, ready? Are you getting the tune? She loves me. That did not go as I planned. Sarah, can you come take this away from me? I was hoping I could do better. I, I tried really hard. All right, Sarah. Amazing Grace. have you been playing the violin? Uh, since I was 12 years old. Seven years? Wow. <laughs> That's remarkable. <laughs> That's a long time. Sir, when you first started playing, could you play like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I took many years of piano before that for a foundation. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Here's the point. Unless I train for years playing scales, learning music for that particular instrument, it is all foreign to me. It takes training, not just trying. Wise people understand this. A guy by the name of Meyer Friedman is the guy who came up with the type A personality diagnosis. He has some, some training exercises that he uses for the hardcore type A people that he calls heart, heart attack victims in waiting. Okay. He calls them that. They have to learn a different way of living that's not harmful to, to themselves in the long haul because this is rampant in our world today. Matter of fact, there's a really incredible documentary that came out not long, ago, not long ago called One Nation Under Stress. Some of you may have seen it. It's unbelievable. American working adults are living with lethal levels of stress in their lives. If you haven't seen that, that uh, One Nation Under Stress, yeah, I think you can watch it on YouTube now. So Meyer Friedman deals with uh, these people that are in the stress danger zone, and he gives them exercises to do and to keep doing. For example, for three weeks, he will have them deliberately drive in the slow lane. For three weeks, he will tell them every time you're in the grocery store or in a store, like, get in the longest line available. Three weeks, get used to it. And he tells them stuff like, when you eat, chew. Like, chew, for real. <laughs> they have to learn new habits. So he gives them these extended length training exercises so that in time, they will be able to do what they cannot now do by direct effort. It takes time. But it is so worth it. And for these people, it might save their lives. Now, most of us have heard this. Uh, one of the most beautiful things on Earth is made by heat 
pressure, and time. Heat, pressure, and time create one of the world's most beautiful things. Anybody want to guess? The answer is actually a waffle, but a, a, diamond, a diamond takes the same three exact things, okay? Heat, pressure, and time. And if I have to choose between the two, I choose waffle every time. All right, but I digress. Back to training, listen. Uh, it means I arrange my life around those, in, those activities that enable me to do what I cannot now do by direct effort. This is where the whole idea of spiritual disciplines come in. Sometimes people look at discipline as the, as the D word. <laughs> Almost nobody likes to talk about discipline. And not many words have the power to elicit guilt quite the way that the word discipline does. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know I should be doing that. I know I shouldn't be doing this. Discipline represents the stuff that you want to do, you wish you did, and you feel guilty for not doing it. Matter of fact, let me just say all the discipline buzzkills right now. We can get them out of the way, right? Eat better. Exercise more. Read your Bible. Save more. Spend less. And call your mother. Anything else? I miss any? Those are the discipline buzzkills right there. Now beyond that, sermons on discipline have this tendency to heap guilt upon a human soul. Even if you are a pretty disciplined person, I can push all the right buttons and have you walking out of here thinking, I, I am such a low life. What is the matter with me? God, all, after all God has done for me and I can't even do A, B, C, or D, I am a waste of skin. So the topic of discipline tends to bring a whole lot more guilt and very, very little joy. The establishment of discipline, however, brings great joy. It brings great joy because it brings about something in your life that you have desperately wanted. Maybe you quit smoking or learned a second language or completed a fast or started tithing or finished your degree, finally balanced your checkbook, whatever it may be. Maybe you've experienced a personal victory like getting to your goal weight or getting off social media or quit dropping your phone every three months because that gets really expensive, doesn't it? But when you accomplish something that took discipline, feels great, doesn't it? Feels great. Anyone wish you never learned that second language? Anybody wish you never finished your college degree? Probably not. So there is some joy and gratitude on the back end of that discipline that you went through. Now having said that, the area of discipline is a very misunderstood one. And because of that, it brings, it has the capacity to bring incredible frustration. Because often we can't seem to do what we hope to do or what we set out to do. Because if it were just as easy as choosing a path and sticking to it, then we would all be wealthy Bible scholar underwear models with second languages and no points on our driving record. What's the hang up? Why do we struggle so badly? Unfortunately, we have this thing that is called flesh. We are fallen, we are imperfect. And as much as we are unable to save ourselves eternally on our own, the truth is we are unable to live out the Christian life fully on our own as well. We need help. Even the best and the strongest willed of us need help, sometimes a lot. There is an episode in scripture that is painfully clear about this. It zeroes in on the Apostle Paul. And Paul has the pedigree of someone who could depend on himself if anybody could. And by the time he writes this, he's a seasoned believer and a seasoned leader. And he came from a zealously disciplined background. 
And he gives his, his resume, a portion of his resume in Philippians chapter 3. Here's what he says. He says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault, he says. So Paul had it going on. Paul was a better human being than me. He's a better Christian than me. He's a better leader than me. And he could probably beat me at golf. I mean, Paul's a rock star when it comes to dedication. I mean, he was, he was a perfect example. But even Paul drags the same fleshly tendencies that we all do. I mean, look how honestly he states this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Really? Paul himself struggles with his own behavior? I mean, it's terrible for Paul, but it actually makes me feel a little better about it all. I'm not alone. You ever feel like that? No? Liars. He goes on in verse 18. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Now that I can relate to. I want to get up and read my Bible, but instead I roll over and go back to sleep. I want to eat a salad, but Krispy Kreme is all out of salads. <laughs> I want to get quiet and pray, but I can do that later. Right now, Netflix is calling me. Paul feels this tension too, apparently. Look at verse 24. He says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You ever have a morning after thought like that? You review the day before, the night before, and guilt just overtakes you. Regret, defeat. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Paul is painfully in touch with the human condition. He felt the same way that I felt and you have felt when we can't seem to get a handle on discipline. So where does he land? Does he just wallow in being a loser? Or does he just adjust his expectations? Just lower the bar a few notches so he doesn't get disappointed as much? Well, he could. That's what we do a lot. We can't seem to keep the standard that we shoot for. So we just change the standard. Kind of like, well, I can't get consistency in my prayer life, so I'll just virtually stop praying altogether. I keep forgetting to read my Bible regularly, so I will settle to heaven for having the Bible read to me at church. I keep falling short of my goal of not missing church at all, so now I guess I'll just feel good that I make it sometimes. We just lower the bar so there's not as much tension. Is that where Paul settled? No. No. He, and he doesn't say this, who will free me from this, from this life that's dominated by sin and death? He doesn't say that as just a pity party because he lands on the answer in verse 25. Listen to these words. Thanks be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in that short phrase, Paul reveals the miraculous answer to our discipline problems. Here's why. 
God wants us to be dependent upon him for this and for all things in life for really good reason. Because when we simply just try to pull up our own bootstraps and focus on doing better, when we try to dig deep and drum up that willpower to get the rock up the hill using guilt, shame, whatever it takes to get there, if we do that, when we do that, one of two things is going to happen. First is, you fail again. You repeat that cycle of failure until you finally just give up or adjust the expectations, lower the bar a little bit like we talked about a minute ago. And you experience shame and guilt and condemnation, self-loathing, just a host of other destructive feelings. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. So you can fail or the other might happen. You succeed, which might actually be worse. Why? Because anytime we get real impressed with our own sense of discipline, it sets the stage for pride. Whenever we reinforce self-sufficiency, we begin to distance ourselves very subtly from God. Even though it initially might feel like victory because you were able to over overcome maybe some stretches of poor self-control, you start reacting in a way that's very, very different than where Paul landed when he says these words, thanks be to God, the answer is in Jesus Christ my Lord. Instead, you land on something else entirely. Thanks be to me. This is because of my own willpower. And that's disastrous. That's not growth. That's actually a huge step backwards. That's pride, which has been the downfall of so many. Pride leads to Phariseeism. This sense of self-importance and superiority, which is the one thing that Jesus never let go of because it is a cancer in a human soul. No good comes from that. The Bible is really, really clear about how much goodness and power is in us without God. Let me just look at this. In John chapter 15, Jesus speaks these words, Apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. Only by connection to God do I have power of any kind. Isaiah says it like this in, in chapter 64. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. As proud as we can get when we think we're doing good and living right, it's all a facade that's based on comparison with each other. We forget that it's pointless to try to impress a perfect, holy, infinite God. Any righteousness that we have comes from Him, not from us. Then the prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, <laughs> desperately wicked. So the old argument that people are basically good is cleared up once and for all here. We are capable of good, yes, by all means, with God's help. But we are just as capable of staggering evil, given the right circumstances. So don't fool yourself. And the thing is, God doesn't remind us of our capacity for evil in order for us to feel bad about it. It's simply so that we will respond to Him. Because He offers to cleanse us completely, and permanently. He makes us new. See, a cleaned up, disciplined, better version of yourself is not really what God is after. He wants to recreate you in His image with His heart in you. It's the growth that He brings. It's the thriving that He brings to you. So, when it comes to personal disciplines, 
If you approach it with the right mindset, then they will help you grow as a believer. But it's not a matter of willpower. It's about asking, asking, believing, and trusting God to help you put those things in your life that will help you thrive. And He meets you there. When you connect with Him and say, Lord, I need, He meets you there. He gives you the power to do what you have been unable to do thus far. And yes, there are things that you can put in your life that will help you thrive. Time alone with God will help you thrive. Tithing, giving generously, helps you thrive. Soaking up God's Word helps you thrive. Regularly reaching out to the others in your life, the people around you, that helps you thrive. God uses those things and others to shape you into the person that He created you to be. A fully thriving you. I want you to bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, we're grateful that you make it evident in your word that what you really, really want is this deep connection between us and you, between me and you. And in that connection, Lord, we find life, we find strength, and we find discipline. Lord, I don't want to glorify my own flesh and glorify my own willpower. Lord, I want to grow in my dependence upon you so that you can bring about the things in me that please you. I belong to you, Lord. And so I want to please you with my life. So God, help me to live in this vital connection to you. Help us all to live in this vital connection to you. Lord, we've all experienced varying levels of failure. And we're grateful, Lord, that you don't cast us off when we fail. You invite us up closer and up higher to come and receive the vitality from you that we need. So God, I pray that this very day we would do that. As we endeavor to, to uh, stretch out in private disciplines, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't go straight from here into, okay, let's start the grind. But we would come to you first and say, Lord, do the work inside of me so that I might glorify you with my life. And help, Lord. We need your help. We all do. Let us never kid ourselves in thinking we can pull this off on our own. Lord, we believe you can do this. And now we believe that you will. We depend on you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.